Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other fields that we find interesting. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hey, John. Who's our first guest this week? Our next guest turned a college project into a business plan for what is now one of Pennsylvania's most beloved breweries. In 2014, along with fraternity brother Asa Foster, he founded Brew Gentlemen in the former SEAL community of Braddock, Pennsylvania. Since then, the brewery has garnered national attention, not only for their terrific beer, but for their community-focused ethos. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Matt Katase. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, it's been a while, but uh, it's a, very much a pleasure to have you on. It is uh, good to see your face off also on, the, on video yeah. here. Um, we're going to jump right in. So you and Asa met in the dorms at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. You were both fraternity brothers at Sigma Alpha Epsilon. You know, mm-hmm. I, I picture everyone crushing cans of, of Iron City, and there are these two guys in the corner talking about fermentation and hopping. Did you and Asa immediately bond over your love of beer? Yeah, I mean, I think that was, uh, we were, you know, we lived on the same floor freshman year, and uh, kind of fast forward to our junior year, I was a math major, oh. and he was in the art program, and we were both kind of trying to figure out what we wanted to do after college. And, uh, I happened to be reading a book, uh, on beer and we, I was visiting him for Thanksgiving, uh, in back in 2010 and, uh, kind of drunkenly said, Hey, we should start a brewery. And he was like, let's do it. So the next day we went on a tour of a brewery and came back and started brewing in the fraternity garage and almost got kicked out of school for (laughs) brewing beer on campus. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you know, just got, you know, spent our senior year working on the business plan and all that and graduated in 2012 and uh, put all of our energy into getting it up and running. So what were you drinking back in those days? Because I remember what I was drinking when I was at Robert Morris, you know, yeah, back like beginning of 2000s, early. A very 90s. long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway. It's funny. So um, back when, so our fraternity back in the, like, I think it was like the late 80s or early 90s. They were the third largest purchaser of Iron City oh my after like the stadiums. <laughs> and, um, so that's like one of those like fun facts from, you know, uh, but, you know, we were we had the light beers that were around. But honestly, you know, a lot of the early craft stuff. So I lived right across the street from a incredible beer bar that always had new stuff from Trogues and Victory. Right. And I think that was when you saw a lot of the other kind of regionals that were distributing to other markets. So we would get things from like you know, drank a lot of bells. I mean, bells too hearted is still one of my favorite beers and a huge inspiration. Um, but you know, a a lot of that, you know, dogfish head, all all those kind of brands, uh, that were kind of popular at the time. God, I wish we had those back then because we were doing uh, (laughs) keg stands with like beast ice and, uh, you know, Mm, pawning mm -hmm. over, uh, (laughs) iron city. Can you tell us about those first, sessions of home brewing in the the buggy house at your fraternity was a recipe for general braddock's ipa developed there at that time yeah so the first two beers we brewed uh were white sky which is our chai wheat beer and uh a version of general braddock's the general braddock's that is today is not the same but we always had this same idea i think which was we really wanted to make soft and balanced beers um even with you know with all of those beers that we were trying, there was a lot of like incredibly aggressively hot beers. And we really were, had an eye towards that more, you know, brown, softer, balanced flavor. Uh, what's funny though is White Sky. I mean, you could call it beginner's luck. Uh, that first batch, I mean, the recipe is pretty much the still same. The same. I mean, other th- yeah, other than getting a little bit better at it, it's still the same base recipe and we've adjusted the spices. But th- I think maybe that was why we ended up following through was that first batch, people were like, whoa. And uh, we presented it at an art show, and people were blown away by it. So that is um, amazing. That still holds true. Yeah, that is amazing. 
So how does the water in Pittsburgh lend? Does it tend to be more soft for like the IPAs and those styles of beer? Yeah. So when we first started, I, you know, this was us being, you know, geeking out, but honestly we had <laughs> still no idea what we were doing, but we would start with like completely neutral water and build up a profile. Oh, always, uh, yeah. And then when we, yeah. And then when we came to Braddock, the water was just, it's perfect for the style of beers we do. We do very little adjustments. Um, you know, we, we still test quarterly to just make sure everything tracks, but, um, yeah, it's, we're really fortunate. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause I remember homebrewing back in the day I would use, I think it was down here. It would be Zephyr Hills cause it's the most neutral, not hard, not soft, kind of in the middle ground there. But then obviously once we open the brewery here, realizing that Miami water is very hard. So that lends towards only certain styles of beer. So we had to install mm-hmm. an RO tank to be able to do those softer styles of beer such as IPAs mm-hmm. and everything that kind of call for that. So during your junior year, you and Asa took a Thanksgiving weekend trip to Boston. What happened on that trip? Yeah, I mean, um, we got pretty, you know, pretty sauced up for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I like I said, I was reading I was reading up Brewing Up a Business, which was uh, Sam Calagione's book. And, uh, you know, said, Hey, let's, let's do this. And so the next day we actually, the brewery we toured was Boston beer, the of course. kind of the, the showroom tap room that they have. And we were like, Oh, how hard could it be? Make beer, sell beer. And, uh, you know, that's so funny because it's that simple, but it's also oh, it's that hard as well. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's so much more to it than that. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, what we did was when we came back, we instantly said, to some of our fraternity brothers, hey, we're going to start a brewery. And one guy in the house, so our fraternity motto was the true gentleman. Ah. And one guy in the house was like, so what, like brew gentleman? And that's where the name came from, and it stuck. Oh, wow. So, so it came from, oh, wow, from fraternity slogan. That yeah. is amazing, dude. That is mm-hmm. awesome. So for our listeners who may have never been to Braddock, mm-hmm. can, can you kind of describe the town to us? Yeah. So Braddock is about 15 minutes from downtown Pittsburgh. It is where Andrew Carnegie kind of built his steel empire. So the Edgar Thompson works, uh, which is actually still uh, producing steel to this day. So we're right in the shadow of kind of this large behemoth of a steel mill. Uh, But it was a booming town. I mean, back in the day, you know, uh, they said if you couldn't buy it, if you couldn't find in Braddock, you didn't need it because this town had everything. Uh, The first uh, Carnegie library is in our town. And actually, uh, one of our partners in the business, Elena, she's on the board there now as well. And oh, they're wow. about to undergo like a huge $15 million uh, renovation modernization project. So we've got like historical culture. Uh, but the kind of the sad thing about the town was with the crash of the industry, the steel industry, it really uh, the town kind of fell on hard times. And uh, we had this very eclectic mayor named John Fetterman, who is now lieutenant governor oh. of uh, Pennsylvania. And I believe he's running for U S Senate. Uh, he, he was kind of put out a call that, you know, for artists or anyone that was interested, you know, there were resources and they would help support it. And, um, yeah, we, we fell in love with kind of the, the history and the, you know, um, the potential of what it could be and helping rebuild a community. Uh, and then also, you know, even before the, the steel empire stuff, uh, Braddock was the site of uh, a a major battle during the French Indian war, which is why our flagship IPA is named after general Braddock, who was an English uh, uh, general and his aide de camp was actually this guy named George Washington. Oh Uh, yeah. Yeah, Actually. Yeah. That's uh, very true. I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a very historical site. I mean, there's a lot that have have happened around here. I mean, even the whiskey rebellion, like the homestead strike that that was right up the street from us. So there's a lot of, there's been a lot of energy in this this part, this neck of the woods. That's amazing. So there is a definitely a lot of history behind that city. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. So since we are on the business channel, how did you guys go about financing the build out of Brew Gentleman? Yeah, um, we were very young. We were very naive, and we were willing to do any and everything. And so uh, one of our early investors said uh, he's never seen a more efficient use of capital than our first uh, build out. But what we did was we were able to get support from uh, small business like the Enterprise Zone, which was focused on Braddock. And we used that and the Allegheny County uh, funds to do a lo- like a loan. But in order to get that loan, we had to raise some private money. 
So we had some friends, some fraternity brothers, some, uh, you know, friends, families, fools round is kind of what they call it that early, those early stage investors. And, uh, I think we got everything up and running for right around 300, 300 K. Wow. That's not bad at all. So that, can you describe what was that first facility? Like what size production was it? What size brew house was it? It was very tiny. It was a three and a half barrel system. We were double batching into seven barrel fermenters, um, you know, all draft pretty much through our tasting room. It's funny because, you know, up until 2020, when we did the expansion, everyone thought we were way larger. Like I guess our, our name punched above the size of brewery were, but we were really tiny. I mean, the first few kind of times that we came down to Miami to see you guys, we were doing four or 500 I th- barrels. I think the first time I met you guys was in Boston at that uh at the micro brew fest in uh yeah. june at at, um, mm-hmm. at uh beer advocates micro brew fest oh. so yep. yeah i don't think you were there i didn't no. I, I thought you were gonna say ebf and i was like no no, no, God, it, wasn't, no. it wasn't extreme beer fest no that was horrible it I was micro brew fest right it was micro brew fest yeah because she's yep. talking about extreme beer fest which is like in january and it's like 10 below in boston mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. i i slipped on black ice which was <laughs> not fun at all yeah so I did. I didn't. I did not even realize that you guys were only on a three and a half. Uh, I honestly would have been one among the crowd that would have thought you were on a much larger system than that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. So actually, in 2020, you guys opened a new facility that increased your production tenfold. How did that? Yeah, pretty uh, much. I mean, what size facility are you in now, and how did that new facility change your whole scope? Yeah. So we were. We've been working on an expansion since 2018. We kept it very quiet because, you know, a lot of breweries announce an expansion and then it's like three years later, still nothing has happened. Right. Things take time. Uh, so we kept it under the wraps. And the uh, March of 2020, uh, we brewed our first batch of beer on the new system and then the pandemic. And so we, you know, we we had the three and a half barrel system and then the new system was a 20 barrel brew house. Uh, we scaled General Braddock's, that was the priority. And, you know, we were like, oh, we got to get beer into cans now. Uh, we That was the plan all along. Right. And, you know, we were always, you know, we wanted the big facility to do it because on the small side, it was almost impractical. Right. Uh, and once we kind of scaled, then, you know, everything locked down and we were still trying to brew and get everything going on there. Uh, but honestly, the the biggest shift. I mean, I think that year we grew by a hundred percent. And then last year we grew by another 50%. Um, this year we're probably on pace to grow by another 50%. So like, you know, just, get, but that's for us, that's just getting to the size that like a lot of you guys have, have been for a couple of years. So the first couple of years when you were on the three and a half barrel system, how many barrels were you guys doing annually production? The most we ever did was I think 550 barrels. And what are you guys at now? Last year we did eighteen twenty. Okay. And then yeah, uh, eighteen twenty package. So I think we brewed like twenty two hundred or something. Where do you see yourself going, and what's going to be that medium nice spot for you guys to be in, as far as being comfortable to where you guys see yourself settling and probably being okay. This is where we're going to stay. Yeah, um, I think you know we've looked at it as with the expansion we we built it to scale. So I think, you know, there's a lot of space in there. The system can support a lot. I think our goal in the next five years is to get somewhere between seven to 10,000, depending on how quickly we move and kind of reassess from there. I think, you know, the market continues to change dramatically. Yeah. Um, I've talked to a lot of other breweries and Pittsburgh is one of the strangest markets. People have a hard time figuring it out. There's really... Like grocery isn't super strong here. There's like not a lot of routes to market. Uh, other brands have great success in the market, but like no brewery locally has gotten, I mean, Penn, but they've right. been on the decline. Right. So there's no big, big brewery in the area. Huh. So you're telling me no one's really taking hold of the giant eagles up there? Yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> so giant eagles have been doing this weird thing where they're trying to, like, they are supporting local breweries, but they buy beer like the beer stores do. They're not doing it with like shelf resets and get your spot and all that stuff. I got a question for you. So this is always, you know, so when I was in college back there, I mean, late nineties, early two thousands, 
beer was separated from the grocery stores. So for us, when I was in college, if you wanted beer, you used to have to go to the beer depot. And if you wanted liquor, mm-hmm. you used to have to go to the liquor store. Nothing was sold together. Mm-hmm. Kind of like down here, we have a Total Wine, which sells everything together. And then on Sunday, mm-hmm. it was all closed. So the blue mm-hmm. law, is that still in effect up there? So the laws are changing. There have been some, uh, a lot of the grocery stores now sell beer and they have a wine permit as well, but they're able to sell beer by having essentially a restaurant license. So they have their, you know, all the supermarkets have their little cafe and then, you know, same thing with like the get goes or the sheets or, you know, the kind of grocery store or gas station like places. Um, they all installed soda coolers, uh, (laughs) with the anticipation of them being able to be sell, start selling beer. Um, the state store is still where you can buy liquor, but even then there's a move to potentially try to privatize that as well. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, even since when I was in college, you weren't allowed to buy anything but a case. Right. So if you had to buy beer by the case and you know, you couldn't buy singles or anything like that. And they started letting six packs, which for a lot of Pennsylvania breweries that hurt because they never had the infrastructure to make six or 12 packs. Right. It was always a case. Case, case, case. Yep. Yep. That's amazing. Well, I mean, at least that's a, that's a, a step forward for you guys as well. So Forbes magazine, the article that you did, you said that you ended up selling more beer during the pandemic than in your tap room before it began. Brew gentleman Mm -hmm. was like a business case study for adapting in a time of crisis. Can you briefly tell us how you guys pivoted during the early days of that pandemic? Yeah. Um, it, I was sitting in the tap room, you know, it was Sunday. One of our employees was like tracking with everything and said, Hey, I don't know what's happening. And we made the immediate call before any of the lockdowns came and said, we're going to be closed for at least a month just to figure it out. And immediately saw that and jumped to sourcing crawlers our top one of our best accounts is called um, Marinos out in Greensburg. They let us borrow their crawler machine and we just started filling as many beers as we could into crawlers just to get it beer out the door. Um, we didn't have online sales set up or anything. So what we did was we filled had a Google form and told people fill it out and we'll call you. And Elena sat on the phone every single day, calling people, talking to them, getting their orders And what we had found during that time was that everyone was so on edge. No one knew what was going on. People just wanted to talk. And so not only were we there to sell beer for people who wanted to get beer, because that the other thing was all the state stores closed. So you couldn't even buy liquor. So beer sales were, were fantastic during that time. (laughs) Um, But then also just being, you know, instead of people coming into our tasting room and being a place where they were able to, you know, use it as their third space and talk and hang out, we kind of filled that role digitally and we're talking to people and, you know, it, it led to a lot of incredible conversations and it helped us continue to figure out where people were at and set the tone for how we were going to kind of continue to move through it. So talking to people was really how we, we pivoted. Well, that's amazing. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think during that period, a lot of people just wanted to talk to other people other human beings yeah you miss that mm-hmm. you miss that human interaction that social aspect of life and yeah. and as humans we need that absolutely 100 percent. so what does your distribution model look like now versus what it was in the beginning obviously you guys just had a tap room i think you guys sold out of the tap room correct and mm-hmm. then what are you guys at now where are you distributing now is are you still just in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania or have you expanded beyond those lines? Yeah. So it, yeah, we were tasting room only before we had a couple accounts that we would sell draft to. Uh, and then, you know, during the pandemic, part of it was we need to scale general Braddock's. So Elena had took over sales for us and has built up a portfolio of over 200 accounts at this point, just in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, for all of 2020, we only distributed cans of general Braddock's, which is our flagship IPA. And then, Starting in 2021, we started to sell the rest of the other beers in our portfolio. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the beer stores, a lot, you know, more draft accounts, draft is coming back. So more people are buying kegs and, um, we're still in Western Pennsylvania primarily, uh, 
every once in a while when like I'm going to a beer festival this weekend. So I'm going to load up the truck and do a drop in, you know, out that way, uh, do stuff like that. Um, but I think, you know, our goal is to go deep in our market and area first. Um, but you know, the other thing that we've put a lot of time and energy into is shipping. So we've, you know, we've, we ship statewide and we've seen a lot of success from that and potentially opening up more States there as well. Nice. So that's awesome. What do you think in, I mean, your firsthand basis, what does the Pittsburgh craft beer community look like now versus when you were back at Carnegie Mellon? Like how many breweries are there now? If you know off the top of your head. So we were the 15th brewery to start in Allegheny County. And now there are over 40 something. I think it's like 45. Wow. Um, You know, we've had two people that uh, spent time at brew gentlemen, go on to start their own breweries locally. And then one in Colorado. So, you know, we have a couple of alumni from our organization that have started breweries. Um, And then, um, I mean, it's wild. It's, it's such a tight knit community up here too. And, you know, like Scott over at East end just celebrated gratitude day, which is his, you know, Oh my gosh. I, yes. I I love gratitude. Oh my gosh. I mean, you're talking about stuff I used to trade for back like in the early two thousands. Yeah, I, uh, exactly. <laughs> probably one of the best barley wines out there. Yeah. Yep. So gratitude day was this past weekend and 15 other local breweries put it on draft to celebrate. Oh, that's amazing. And so it was just like, you know, it's very tight knit. Um, but about a couple years after we got started, we actually formed a Pittsburgh brewers guild. So, oh. um, you know, we were one of the founding members of that and we, you know, have a collective organization that also we're still part of the state guild as well, but kind of we have this like Western Pennsylvania contingency and everyone kind of works together really well. And I mean, you hear it a lot in craft, you know, craft brewing communities of, you know, rising tide floats all boats and people helping out with each other. But Pittsburgh continues to just be this really fun, robust market with a lot of really unique breweries. Um, I think it's one of the most underrated beer cities in the country, honestly, like people idolize Asheville and some of these other places, Denver. And, and I'm like, yeah, but Pittsburgh's got this really awesome energy. So there, there is something about Pittsburgh, which really kind of leads me into my last question. So I grew up in Miami and I went to Robert mm-hmm. Morris University in Moon Township. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I fell in love with Pittsburgh, the people, everything there. You're from Hawaii. Asa's from Massachusetts. I, I'm assuming that you fell in love with the city, too. What do you wish that the rest of the country knew about Pittsburgh that has somehow hasn't gotten through the rest to the rest of America? Yeah, that's that's such a good question because Pittsburgh is on a lot of those lists of like best places to live and all of those things. But I think the underlying tone here is you can really you can build a good life. There's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of really great community. There's a lot of people who it's it's like it's a practical place. Hard oh, working. Yeah. I always love the people. The people were always so nice. Yeah. E- even though I, I mean, the local dialect, you know. You know, it was a little, get- little strenuous, <laughs> you know what I mean, with yens, mm-hmm. yens. But, uh, mm-hmm. and I mean, I also would have to say that, uh, I mean, permanis would have to be something that is not known to all of America, but should be. <laughs> yeah. So you'll, you'll love this, actually. We, uh, we got General Braddock's on tap at the airport, and it's at the permanis. Oh. And every single time I fly in and out of Pittsburgh, I stop and grab a beer, and just, it's, it's like, we want General Braddock's to be Pittsburgh's IPA, so it's got to be on at Permanis because that's Pittsburgh's sandwich. And, and if you're at Permanis, what are you ordering? Double cap, double egg. Oh boy, okay, double cap, double capicola with double egg mm-hmm. with with the slaw and fries. Oh yeah, oh, you, okay. It's not a Permanis sandwich if you don't do it. Okay, <laughs> okay. Actually, our our producer has one one uh, one last question here. Matt, it's Rocco. Uh, my question is, I think he knows that. Yeah, he's, he's all right, go ahead. Hey Matt, I have a question. Um, mm-hmm. I assume that you, um, you know, you've spoken to aspiring entrepreneurs like the kind that listen to the, you know, to the show, um, mm-hmm. probably at, at, at your alma mater CMU. What, what advice would you have for young entrepreneurs just starting off? Yeah. I mean, I think the idea stage is the most fun. It's where the dreams are really big and you've got to explore all that. I think so many people though, jump to the next shiny thing too quickly. And I think it's really, if you've got something and you really want to do it, it, 
the hard work begins by just showing up every single day and that consistency. And I think, you know, a lot of people have those big ideas and the ideation. It's like, you know, ideas are, are worth, you know, dime a dozen, but it's all about execution. So I think it's, if you truly are in it, it's like sticking the course. I mean, we're almost eight years into this business and I still feel like we're learning and, you know, haven't quite cracked it and figuring it out. And I'm <laughs> sure you're nodding your head. You're probably feel oh, yeah. the same. I mean, oh, it yeah. just, yeah, I think I think if you're not constantly learning something new all the time, then you kind of go the way of the dinosaur. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that that is my feeling. Like if if you're yep. not constantly trying to push the envelope, which we've been doing now for over 7 years, if you're not constantly trying to push that envelope and constantly trying to stay on that forefront and trying to create new ideas and push those new ideas and execute those new ideas, then you've kind of lost that passion and the love for what you're doing and you've mm-hmm. kind of just become complacent of where you're at. And well, not mm-hmm. just that. I think also like when you stop learning, you... Right, you, right. If you stop learning and stop reading, uh, you know, uh, for me, it's reading brewing books or anything that would drive any kind of idea or spark any kind of idea for me. If I stop doing that, then it's just like, I really don't care to progress anymore. Right. You, mm-hmm. hit, you hit a wall, I right. think. I have a question. All right, Go ahead. Ray has a question. Go ahead, hold. You, okay. you guys were talking about this permanis, permanis. Permanis. It's permanis. Permanis. Okay, excuse me. Okay. I've never been to Pittsburgh. There's, um, there's one in Fort Lauderdale. Okay, you said it's not the same. No, the pizza's good. The sandwiches suck. <laughs> also, okay. oh I never God. go to we're Fort Lauderdale. Somebody's business. <laughs> I never go to <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. I hope they don't pour <laughs> Wakefield there. <laughs> no, the problem Get the Wakefield off draft. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, listen. Well, no, I'm it's saying. It's not the same is what he's saying. What I'm yes. saying is versus Permanis on the Strip in yes. Pittsburgh, the sandwiches up there are the best. The pizza is kind of so. Like, it's a eh, sandwich shop for know. anyone that's listening that doesn't know what Permanis is. Yeah. Well, uh, listen. I remember my days of it was uh, it was freshman orientation. We were all hungover as crap and going to Three Rivers Stadium to watch a uh, Pirates game as part of freshman orientation at Robert Morris and grabbing a sandwich from one of the carts in the stadium and eating it there. It was like the greatest thing ever as hangover food to try to recover. So what was your go-to? Uh, was it was the, the number two. It was the number two. Okay, what's in but, the number two? Uh, it was... Uh, oh, wow. Uh, uh, look at this He guy. knows it if he eats it. But yeah. it's, it's, nope. it's, it's, a, it's a sandwich, right, on With, big, like, holo, I guess it's hollow bread or whatever, right? And then the signature part of it is they put a gigantic uh, thing of coleslaw and, and fry. French fries but, on the sandwich. But I always added that's, mayo. That's mayo and hot, I always cool. added yeah. mayo and hot sauce to yeah. mine. So, how are the fries? Are they like McDonald's fries, no. or are they no, thicker? No, are they crinkled? No, they're they're like fresh cut. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 It, but it is it is a permanis thing to do the coleslaw. That's their and thing. The fries. Yes, That's it is. Their and, it's, and it's a vinegar-based coleslaw. Right. It's not ah. a mayo-based. It's vinegar-based. It's not yeah. a mayo-based coleslaw. It's vinegar-based, yeah. Right. So it's not so, sweet. Actually, there was, a, there was another beer festival that I went to, and one of the people was – it was out in Alaska. It was at Anchorage Brewing. And one of the people out there was like, oh, you know, we've never had them out in Washington. They actually shipped them. So I went home, ordered them a box, and shipped them all the things to make a Permani sandwich oh, wait, wait. to their they, place in Seattle. They ship now? Yeah, they they ship. Oh. They've been shipping their sandwiches. Like they send all the ingredients that you need, and then you just put it together. Oh, okay, so I'll I'll have to order a box of permanis, and then we can do a review <laughs> yes, yes. on the show yeah. as to how good these sandwiches. Because yes. you have been talking. We should this get up we should get them as a sponsor. Years. Well, it's either, it was either permanis or pierogies. Oh, you know, yeah. I like pierogies. pierogies you know, like pierogies. you're in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. you're having permanis, or you're having. Uh, yeah. You know, cheese and onion, uh, like there's, potato pierogies. Yeah, you know? there's a big Polish yeah. community up there. Um, yeah. Yes. 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 Grandma's basement, church basement pierogies. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Hey, is I got a question? Is Church Brew Works still there? Yes. Nice. Um, yeah. Church Brew Works was yeah. They were one of the first, first. breweries yeah. in yes. Pittsburgh. They, I think they started in 1997. Yep. Yeah. They renovated the giant church and you know it that was back it was blasphemous to do that right uh, but still one of the things that you know that's actually when i was in college that's one of the places we used to go for happy hour they were like half off beers and dollar slices of pizza and so we would go there we wrote our business plan on coasters at that bar i yep. mean in a the guy church that was yes. our, that's so cool, really cool yeah. no i mean the point the guy I mean, that's our, 
how is it now? I mean, is it still pretty good now or? Um, I think that they've, they've gone through some changes. I think, you know, the older, the owner is getting older and I, I don't know quite what their priorities are. They had a, a couple other issues, right. um, with, uh, I think their pizza oven caught on fire at one point, oh, wow. you know, kind of some other things like that, but it's still one of the most beautiful places you can go. It's really, I mean, the altar is the brew house is yes. on the altar. Yes. It's, yeah. That's and, it's very, and if I remember correctly, I mean, they used to be, cause they were one of the first ones in Pittsburgh. And I remember when I would go back and visit and go in there and not, not only would they push the boundaries, the beers and the beer styles and stuff like that, but they would offer different types of pierogies. Like there were rattlesnake pierogies or other stuff like that with the food. So, but just walking into a church when you would normally think of pews and everything else, right. and all of a sudden you see this brew house, <laughs> you're like, well, That's what's going on cool. here? But it was, yeah. it was a really cool experience. But mm-hmm. thank you very much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank Thanks, you for joining Matt. us today. Absolutely. And we will see you soon, brother. Sounds good. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is an accomplished author, teacher, and speaker. She is also the great-great-granddaughter of Julius Sturgis, who established America's first commercial pretzel bakery in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, during the Civil War. She is also a co-owner of the company that Julius started, Tom Sturgis Pretzels, in Reading, Pennsylvania. The pretzel company continues her family's craft and has distribution throughout the United States. A few years ago, she wrote the definitive book on all things pretzels, called Twisted. Mindful Pretzel Consumption. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Jill Marie Thomas. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. How are My you? Pleasure. How are you? You on vacation, I hear. I am in Williamsburg, yeah. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I haven't been there in a while. So Jill has been so kind to join us today in the middle of family vacation, and you guys are in Williamsburg, which is a very nice, nice place to be right now. First question, did your family eat a ton of pretzels while you were growing up? We had pretzels all the time, <laughs> and not only our companies, but other companies, because we were always, you know, interested in what's out there. Really? So it was yeah. kind of like a, like a research project by trying everybody else's pretzels. Absolutely. My dad would come home from work every day with a couple of bags of pretzels. You know, maybe two of them were ours, and one of them was somebody else's. Oh, wow. So... We had on a sixth-generation hop farmer, we asked him this same question. How old were you when you realized that your family business was making pretzels and that it was a really cool thing? Oh, probably three or four. My dad used to take my brothers and I into the bakery when there was a, you know, like a breakdown. And we would crawl up on the conveyor belts and ride up through the different floors. And, oh, you know, we had to run of the place. We, we knew where to get some hot pretzels to snack on. And, you know, OSHA would have a fit about that now. But, <laughs> of course. Yeah, we were, we were very young. Yeah. Can you, for our listeners, can you tell us when the company was founded? Yes, it was in 1861. Wow. Our country was ready to get into some rough stuff. And uh, the same year that we started the Civil War, a young man in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, stepped out in his own risky business and opened his shop. Wow. And uh, I think it was a rough time to start a business with everybody gearing up to go into war. Yes, I would say but so. But he was able to make it go. Wow. So how many generations deep are you guys now in the family business running the pretzel company? I believe it's six. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I am the fifth generation. And my daughter uh, had worked in the retail store for quite a while. My brother's son has worked in there part time. He's off to college. But so I would say six generations are involved. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, we, we've all heard that Catholic monks actually shaped the first pretzels like hands folded in prayer and made them to reward students who learn their prayers. What did your research show about the origin of pretzels? Um, that's, about, that's about right. I, I think it started in Italy, and like you said, um, they, the monks would take little scraps of bread dough that they had left from baking bread, 
And if their students would memorize their Bible verses and say their prayers uh, competently, they would form this little treat for them. And the shape of the treat is in the shape of the children saying their prayers. So they, in those days, they put their hands across themselves. Oh. And, you know, if you use your imagination, that looks like a pretzel. <laughs> yeah. instead of. Yes. So, yeah. so that's how the shape came about. Interesting. So it started. The shape, the shape itself has, has meaning, too. Um, you start by a U shape. You just take the piece of dough and make a U. And that represents the prayers going up to heaven. And then when you cross it and twist it, that knot represents the marriage union of the children's parents. And some people say it's where we get that phrase, tying the knot comes from. Really? From pretzels? It's all about pretzels. (laughs) (laughs) And then when it's completed, there's three holes in the pretzel. And that, again, goes back to the Christian faith with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wow. That, that, that's, that's very interesting though. I had, I did not know that at all. Did you, did you know that at all, Maria? I had no idea, but I've shaped quite a few pretzels in, uh, in pastry school. <laughs> I was, was going to say, I'm, I'm sure you have a, a little bit of a background in pretzels. So your, your great grandfather, your great, great grandfather, actually, did he just decide to open pretzels or was this something that he had been working towards or how did, how did the business even come about? Well, he apprenticed right down the street from where he started his business for uh, a baker. So they were making, you know, pastries and donuts and buns. And he was doing a little experimenting on the side, but he noticed that uh, there, on occasion there was pieces of dough that got stuck in the oven, you know, left in there overnight. They didn't get cleaned out at the end of the day. And when he would clean them out at the end of the next day, you got this nice crispy kind of delicious treat and he ran it by his boss and his boss said you know nobody wants to eat garbage so (laughs) he got nowhere with that but he kept thinking that there's a possibility for this so as a young man he finally went he bought his own place and opened up his own shop and and worked with this business of making pretzels is there any record of how the business was affected during that civil war? I mean, was it, did it boom? Did it take a while to kick off? I mean, it was rough and they, they did work all the way through except for one brief period of time that they were called away to, to fight in the war. Oh, wow. And, uh, Julius had exemption status from the war because he had been kicked by a mule when he was a child. Oh, he was partially handicapped. Oh, I didn't. Wow. Uh, he, he walked with a limp. But even he was called away to, uh, to be there for a while in the war. Wow. So I would imagine it would have been a very historical, difficult time to start a business during that time, especially since there were over two dozen Civil War battles in Pennsylvania, according to Dyer's Compendium. So when was it after the Civil War that his company really started to find success and grow from there? Yeah. In fact, I read that he he nearly shut down a couple of times. Uh, It was such a rough go of it. But some of the grocery stores that he was stocking, they kind of helped him out. They um, extended some grace to him and said, we need your pretzels in our store. You know, keep going. We're going to put you a little bit of money. And um, that's how he stayed afloat. But it was rough. Wow. Well, that's a, that, that is an awesome story. I mean, just getting that backing to keep going through all this history and, and everything. What has led you to write Twisted Mindful Pretzel Consumption? I mean, what a great title, by the way. <laughs> what led you to write that well, book? My family. And it wasn't a project that I really had on my, my wavelength. I was at the time I was writing another book. Um, And for years, they had been pestering me to write the story because the older relatives, of course, they're passing away and the stories that they have are going with them. Right. And uh, I just wasn't interested to do it. But one day I said, "Okay, let me at least go look in our archives and see what I have to work with. And once I once I got into the archives and started looking at pictures and and seeing uh, pictures of my old relatives actually standing by a pretzel twisting table 
it, it kind of fired me up and I, I, you know, I found the passion enough to, to do the project and to write the book. And, uh, ironically, it's the book that has taken me along the roads the most to speak about it and, you know, talk to people about the, the business. Wow. That's it's been a fun ride. Can you briefly describe the book to our listeners? What is mindful pretzel consumption? It's uh, a story of everything you want to know about pretzels, how the hard pretzel industry started with our family. Um, uh, the th- I call it the three different phases of pretzel baking, the olden days, the mechanization, and now the current era. So I talk about all of those. There are uh, recipes, there's crafts for kids, there's trivia, there's presidential pretzel trivia in there. Wow. There's, you know, a little bit of everything. And uh, I think it's a fun book. There's pictures, old pictures. So. Wow. I mean, talking about history, I mean, obviously back in the day, it was all hand done. And then as we moved into kind of like that mechanized revolution, it became more of machine driven. I mean, what is it like now to be inside the pretzel factory, you would say, versus what it started out as back in the Civil War? Well, first of all, we're making a massive more number of pretzels than they did when they hand twisted. And uh, they're using the mesh method called extrusion, where if you think of the kids' Play-Doh presses where they press the dough through and cut it off, right. that's basically what it is. Uh, a blade comes down and chops it. It's called a guillotine blade. Okay. And uh, every second you're, you're putting out probably, uh, you know, 15 to 20 pretzels. And it just, it's really fun to watch. Can you walk me through the process, if you don't mind? I mean, how, how do we get from the beginning to the end to where we have the hard pretzels in a bag? Okay. So you start with the raw ingredients. Uh, we have uh, massive mixers and they turn, they turn out the dough. The dough is placed into hoppers that uh, feed down through the extrusion dies. So the shapes of whatever pretzel you're making get dropped onto a conveyor belt. Okay. They travel along the belt for a while. That's called the proofing part of it, where the uh, dough rises a little bit, just right. like bread dough would need to rise. Then they enter the oven, and at the beginning of the oven, they pass through a, a liquid solution, a soda bath. So it and does that, go through a soda bath, okay. And that um, helps them to get a nice brown color when they bake. Also helps the, the salt to stick on them. So right after they come out of that bath, they get salted. Then they travel through the oven, about 550 degrees, 10 minutes. Whoa, okay. At the end of the oven, they travel by conveyor to a large dryer, which is simply another oven, but at a much lower temperature, about 220 degrees. Okay. And that converts them from the soft pretzel to the crunchy hard pretzel. Okay. And from there, they travel by conveyor to a packaging room, and it's all uh, computerized packaging, depending what you're, you're making. You know, sometimes they just go into large boxes or large cans, but... Wow. Uh, mostly computers. That's amazing. I'm sure that is a wonder to actually see in person. Oh, it's fun to watch. It's fun <laughs> I bet, to watch. I bet it is. I, I mean, I love hard pretzels. I mean, I love soft pretzels. So to me, it would be, it would be an amazing thing to watch. And I, I would guess that nearly every craft beer tap room, I mean, a lot of bars and stuff in the country that offer food has a pretzel on the menu. Why do you think that pretzels go so well with beer and, and other drinks? That's a great question, and I'm not a beer connoisseur, but I think the salt somehow en- enhances the uh, the flavor. Yeah, the salt all, the, the salt will also makes you thirsty, so you'll want to drink more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Whether it be water, about, beer, wine, yes, anything. Any bar I've ever sat at, you don't see cookies on a bar. No, never. You, know, you don't see the sweet things. It's always like some kind of pretzels or salty snack. Yep. And I think that's to drive people to drink more because <laughs> you know, you're driving your thirst with the more salt you eat. Yep. yep. That is amazing. So actually, 181.13 million Americans consume pretzels in 2020. The average American consumes about two pounds of pretzels per year. The pretzel market is, is huge. But how does a family-run business like Tom Sturgis 
compete against all the snack food conglomerates that you guys share the market with? I'll tell you what, it's a rough business. We are basically a small fish in a big sea. We're a small business. And uh, the larger businesses like uh, Frito-Lay and Rolled Gold, right? they have the, uh, the monopoly. And they have the shelf space in the food stores. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard for the little guys. But where are you guys distributed now? Like how many, how many states are you in? Like how, how big is your coverage now with, with Tom Sturgis? I think we're about 15 states. And in the book, you know, I wrote it while we had at that time. So right. I can't tell you exactly at this moment, but of course we're heavier in the East Coast. Okay. Well, I mean, you are, you are in Pennsylvania. So 15 states. Are, are you guys measuring by pounds? I mean, I'm sure you're not doing it by individual count. How many pounds would you say that you guys produce annually of pretzels? Oh, I don't think I can answer that question. <laughs> it's a lot, whatever it is. I mean, it's... It, it, you it's, know, it does change a lot. It, it changes depending on what kind of pretzels we're making and what the orders are and what the uh, the work situation is as far as employees. Oh, yeah. And we, yeah. Fr- frankly, we're struggling like everybody else, you know, help wanted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that is all of us kind of in this like service food industry. I think during the pandemic and after, I mean, and I, I'm sure you guys are feeling the effects is, is actually finding help or people to work. It is hard. It's hard to find workers, yeah. And I know sometimes, you know, my brother will end up going in and doing a bake shift. Wow. Just because, you know, the pandemic has had a big effect. Yeah. I know this is like picking your your favorite child, but by my count, there are over two dozen varieties of pretzels on the Tom Sturgis website. Which Tom Sturgis pretzel is your go-to and why? Uh, I really like the large cheese pretzels. <laughs> okay. Can I, have two, can I have two choices? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I like the large cheese pretzels. They're one of the original oldie goldies. Okay. And uh, I like a newer pretzel. It's called a crunch sole. It's real uh, crunchy and it uses a different process to bake it. They proof it a little bit longer. So in other words, the dough puffs up. And then it sinks down in oh. and it makes these gullies. It's a real gnarly, ugly looking pretzel, but it is delicious. <laughs> it, you know, we, we say it has a little bit more real estate area, so it has more flavor. Ah, okay. And, uh, the older people don't like it. They say it breaks their teeth and it breaks in the bag too much. But you, know, <laughs> you gotta go with it. It's, I just think they're awesome. I mean, I think, I mean, the crunchy also would add more to like a, um, like a, a flavor texture. I mean, crunchy is, is one of those things that I would say that like is a great aspect for food. I mean, crunching and something would obviously add more to the experience, I yeah. guess you could say. And everyone who doesn't yeah. love that crunch sound when you're biting into something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a difference with those. What, what kind of cheese flavor is it? Is it's- it it's cheddar cheese. Oh. And we make the large cheese pretzels and the mini cheese pretzels. And I don't think the smaller ones taste the same as the larger ones. No. The larger ones are a little more mellow. And, uh, you know, that's the cheese are one of the original three pretzels that we made for years and years. And uh, I'm going stick to with, stick with those. I have a question, though. So I eat hard and soft pretzels. Um, I know this is kind of out of the realm, but like on the, the soft pretzel side, I prefer mine not salted, but with mustard. Are you, are you of a fan of pretzels and mustard or, I mean, what do you, what is your school of oh, thought yeah. on that? Yeah, I like that. I like pretzels with mustard. I like that spicy mustard. Oh, okay. My, my brothers and I, we learned early on, if we go to the end of the oven okay. and hold our shirts out. <laughs> There's a shoot there okay. and we could catch pretzels. You know, we'd hold our shirts cause they're too hot to handle. Of course. And, uh, we would walk away with soft pretzels and, Ooh. you know, so I, I'm, I'm a good fan of soft pretzels. <laughs> okay. I think Rocco actually had a question for you here. Uh, you actually didn't answer a question that's been bothering me now for days and days. What is mindful 
pretzel consumption. What does that mean? It's like a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a message in there somehow. I think the message is you should just eat lots of pretzels and enjoy I, them. Okay. I mean, I agree with that. Mind, mindfully consume them as opposed to mindlessly <laughs> consume them like I do. <laughs> Either one works for me. Oh, well, I'll never look at a pretzel you the same way again <laughs> now that I know about the origin of it. That, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. I mean, the history on it is, is, is amazing. So how can people find your book, Twisted Mindful Pretzel Consumption? It's easy. It's on Amazon. Jill Marie Thomas. Nice, nice. And where can our listeners find Tom Sturgis Pretzels? Uh, they are online at TomSturgisPretzels.com, of course. And then the retail shop is in Shillington, Pennsylvania. Wait a second. I've, I've already started oh, looking boy. as we were speaking to Uh-oh. you, Miss Thomas. And wow, I think this... 13 bag variety pack is where it's at. I think we're going to have to order one of those. Look, look, there she goes. Oh, let me see the. There it is. Oh, Oh, awesome. Yes. This picture here is uh, on the wall in the retail store. That's where I got that from. That's awesome. That is amazing. Kind of like a cartoonish drawing of an old. Old old pretzel oh, baking I, shop. I think we're going to have to go with the the thirteen variety pack, yeah. and because it does have the crunch crunch zells in there, and get those with the cheese. I have a final question for you, and finally, for our people who might find themselves in the reading area, how can they visit the Tom Sturgis plant and Julius's house? Uh, well, the Tom Sturgis plant where the pretzels are made is in Shillington, Pennsylvania, and that's where the main retail store is. Now, they do not give tours there. Okay. Um, but if you want a tour, you would go to the pretzel house in Lidditz. Lidditz, It's right okay. on the main street of Lidditz. They give a nice 30-minute uh, tour, and you will see some of the actual old ovens and baking implements. Oh, wow. It's a very fun tour, and you'll learn to twist a pretzel. Oh, you actually, wait a second. You actually show people how to twist a pretzel? John's too oh, excited. Yeah, they will stand at a, a reconstructed twisting table, just like Julius would have had back then. Oh, that is And everybody amazing. will twist the pretzel. You'll get a certificate that you're an official pretzel twister. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun tour. I used to do it once a month just for fun to, that to is uh, give tours. Yeah. I, I think I'm just going to have to go so I could become an official pretzel twister. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I've always wanted to make pretzels. I've actually never done it, but it's something I've always wanted to do. Your dreams would... All yes. come true. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I think Maria has already ordered the 13-bag variety so we can I get did. our hands on some. And Wonderful. Enjoy them. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great vacation and have a good day. Thank you for taking time to talk thank to you. us. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Matt Katase and Jill Marie Thomas, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, James Maresca. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.